Salofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuki. Coming up, a motion of no confidence has been lodged against PNG Prime Minister James Marape. Also, we need the number of staff to provide quality care to our people. A Cook Islands nurse is calling on New Zealand to help with staff shortages. And later... And the reality is that this transition that shipping is embarking on is the biggest investment opportunity for shipping in its history. Pacific and Caribbean states propose groundbreaking global shipping emissions levy. A motion of no confidence has been lodged against Papua New Guinea Prime Minister James Marape. This was announced at the first parliamentary session since the deadly riots in the capital and around the country last month. Around 300 police personnel and 200 soldiers provided security at Papua New Guinea Parliament House for the sitting. Lydia Lewis has the story. After weeks of posturing, a motion of no confidence in Prime Minister James Marape's leadership was handed to the acting speaker, Connie Iguan. The notice of motion of no confidence is a matter of national importance. The destruction from the January Black Wednesday riots hung heavily over the parliamentary session. Some say Black Wednesday, I call it Ugly Wednesday. The unfortunate event uh, that happened on the 10th of uh, uh, January uh, this year, you don't resort to lawlessness to achieve uh, something that you feel is worthy to be pursued. Prime Minister James Marape says he's confident he has the numbers to defeat the motion. The opposition is confident too, selecting Alan Bird as their candidate for Prime Minister. What now? Well, the acting speaker says the next step was for the private business committee to meet. They sat down on Wednesday on day two of Parliament. Once the notice is cleared by the committee, it will be given to the clerk for reporting to Parliament. The speaker says it will then take at least seven days before being considered. New Caledonia's nickel industry is once again under the spotlight, with one of its mines set to be mothballed in the coming days. Mining giant Glencore announced on Monday it has decided to put its Koniambo nickel mining operation in the northern province into care and maintenance status, and further seek to sell its 49% stake in the company, which has accumulated a staggering $14 billion in losses over the past 10 years. In a release from its Swiss headquarters, The Anglo-Swiss company announced the transition would involve keeping the furnaces hot for the next six months as it looks to initiate a process to identify a potential new industrial partner for the mining and processing site. Patrick de Cloyter from RNZ's French Pacific Desk has been following developments and he spoke with Kuroi Hawkins, who began by asking for some background on the mine. Okay, we're talking about the Konyambo nickel mine, uh, which is... uh, the only one of the three major mines in New Caledonia, uh, which is located in the north of the main island. And that makes it also a very symbolic mining site uh, to be affected by such a drastic measure. Because uh, uh, when the new mayor accord, the political accord uh, regarding uh, New Caledonia's political future, was signed uh, uh, in 1998. Uh, There was another accord that was signed just a few months earlier, 
And that was actually a precondition to the Numea Accord. It was called the Bercy Accord because Bercy is the site of the French Ministry of Finance. And it sort of acted the transfer of this huge uh, nickel reserve of Konyambu to a political province in the north part of New Caledonia. So it made it a very emblematic uh, measure uh, on the side of the French government at, at that time. The whole idea was to what they called uh, rebalance uh, the uh, New Caledonian uh, economy between the south, which is perceived as much more wealthy, and the north, which is where uh, most of the Kanak population lives and is less favoured. Now, the the mining question obviously is uh, venture between the province and Glencore Extata. Is is that correct? And it's Glencore that is um, looking to 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 sell its shares. Yeah, what's happening now? Uh, like I was saying, uh, in actual fact. Uh, Konyambo mining site in the northern province uh, started to operate about 10 years ago. And uh, the latest foreign partner to uh, Konyambo, which is uh, majority owned by the northern province, uh, it started to operate uh, sometime in 2013. And uh, what Glencore has now decided uh, as the major financier to this whole operation was that uh, the losses that he'd had uh, accumulated over the past 10 years um, were no longer sustainable, uh, basically for the share of their shareholders. Um, because we're talking in terms of losses for the last 10 years, to uh, we're talking about something like 14 billion euros, which would make it even more if you're talking about US dollars. And this week, we've had some developments in, in this vein. What, what's happened this week? So uh, what has happened this week was, it was like the writing on the wall, because if you remember, uh, a few months ago, we've, we've already been talking about the fact that Glencore was, was warning that they would no longer take part in the in the Konambo mining site by the end of February, which is now. Yeah, they were threatening to withdraw from Konyambo if uh, no uh, acceptable solution was found, uh, either with the, the local uh, stakeholders, uh, the northern province, or as it turned out uh, more recently with the French government. And the French government has really been trying apparently very hard to convince uh, Glencore to stay on board, but uh, it turned out that uh, things didn't go that way. Right, and and so so is the mine currently working? Is it is it being put out of operation? What's happening with the mine? Well, this is what's going to happen uh, in the next uh, few days uh, if we believe what has been announced uh, on Monday by uh, Glencore. Uh, it it will be a gradual, like putting the whole operation to standby mode. Uh, they call it care and maintenance mode. But uh, the initial period for that is going to be for the next uh, at least uh, six months, during which um, 
everyone will be trying to find somebody to take over the shares uh, currently owned by Glencore. They've also kind of reassured that uh, uh, the 1,300 uh, employees will keep receiving their salaries for the next six months. Um, but this is not going to be the case for the other 600 workers or people who work for subcontractors on the mining site. And for them, it looks like uh, uh, the deadline would be much shorter, like within uh, one month, they won't be getting any more salaries from uh, its activities at, at uh, Konyambo. The head nurse at Arutonga's hospital is calling on New Zealand to help meet its staffing shortages. New Zealand's Health Minister Dr Shane Ritsi visited Rarotonga's hospital during the Pacific Mission last week to find out how the country could offer further support. Our reporter Alicia Foon was there and spoke with Nga Manea, Cook Island Chief Nurse Officer, about their greatest needs. Our main um, problem is the short of staff. We need the number of staff to provide quality care to our people. We need the number of staff to offload the burnt out overload from the current workforce on ground. And um, yeah, so. How many staff are you short by? Um, and we need more about 20, 22. There's a lot of nurses that need to be replaced, okay. and it's not yet replaced due to some immigration requirements and due to the other country with the um, they have to resign from their own work and they have to have a notification period for four weeks and then that will delay and then the proceeding of uh, procedures for them to come over it's quite a long process too yeah, so, so what impact does these staff shortages have on the people of Raratonga? The impact is like the staff are burnt out and then reported sick leave, you know, because and the impact also is they don't have quality life with their family. Mm. Whereby on their days off they were all called to come back and work. So they don't have quality time with their with their family and also um, increasing the incidences in patient management and then shortcutting um, because they are all tired. And the impact on people, residents and people that might be on wait lists? Uh, Do you have to delay any procedures? You have to delay the appointments, you know, like, and, you know, in the community they will expect some delays for the nurses to visit the old age and then sometimes our postnatal mothers, there will be a delay um, to visit them. How can New Zealand support the Health Minister of New Zealand, Dr Shane Ritchie, is here taking a tour of the hospital at the moment. What would you like to see? This is your chance to ask. So I would like, like New Zealand, if they have like exchange program, you know, like for upskilling our nurses, like, um, you know, exchange program, like if the nurses from New Zealand can come over and then replace and then our own nurses can go over and, 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 and work. And because we refer our patient, we refer our patients to New Zealand, so just to give them a much exposure to New Zealand situation, 
to New Zealand context. And also we'd like to see in New Zealand to support um, a technical advice in terms of developing our you know, review our nurses act, review our code of conduct, you know, and develop some um, nursing document that will also support our nurses that for them to realize that they are safe in terms of practicing and they have standards in place and they have policies in place and code of conduct, scope of, scope of practice. Eight Pacific and Caribbean small island developing states are calling for a 150 US dollar levy on each ton of greenhouse gas emissions produced by the shipping industry. It's an increase on the $100 a ton levy the group called for in 2019. Last year, the International Maritime Organization, or IMO, agreed to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The IMO has until 2025 to agree on how members will reach this goal. Dr. Peter Nuttall, who works for a research team on transport decarbonisation out of the Marshall Islands, says the IMO needs to agree on what pricing measure needs to be put on greenhouse gas emissions. The IMO will discuss what the price should be at a meeting in March. Dr. Nuttall spoke with Caleb Fotheringham. It's a critical watershed moment for the IMO. We've agreed that they're going to be this high ambition sector, but now we come down to to the business end of the detail where is the funding going to come from and who is going to get the funding and how is it all going to be managed? Right. It sounds like a lot of work needs to be done. What are the Pacific countries pushing when it comes to the levy? So the Pacific has consistently um, made proposals. Uh, it's been the leading advocate for a levy, um, a flat rate charge on all shipping maritime bunker. And we had proposed back in 2020 a levy of $100 a tonne CO2 equivalent. And we've increased that ambition now to $150 a tonne. We put up the figure of $100 a tonne back in 2019 based on the best analysis that we were able to do at that time. And $100 a tonne was sort of laughed at a little bit and the industry was putting up $2 a tonne. However, $100 a tonne is similar to what the European Union is already imposing as a tax on all international shipping that they'll start collecting next year. And the reality is that this transition that shipping is embarking on is the biggest investment opportunity for shipping in its history. We're talking trillions of dollars that will be ploughed into the shipping industry over the next 20 years to reach these targets. So the levy that we're calling for on it, although it sounds a high price, $150 a tonne carbon equivalent, will increase the the cost of shipping bunker by about $500 a tonne. And so people are going, oh, that's an enormously large figure and that's going to increase our charge, you know, the cost of importing goods and that. The analysis that's been done by world experts is it's going to only have a marginal impact on trade costs. Okay, so why has the proposed levy increased so much? It was only four years ago, 2019, that it was $100, and now we're going from 100 to 150 Yeah, five years ago, actually, and and, um, Sorry, and those figures were what we put up as the minimal figure needed to try and meet the price differential and raise the revenue for equitable transition if it had been brought in effect by 2025. 
Now, the IMO has, has determined that the midterm measures will not come into effect for 2027 at the earliest, and there's a lot of people suggesting maybe not until 2030. And so if we're going to delay the investment, every delay increases the price. Therefore, we have to put the price up now. In 2019, you said that the talked about rate was $2 a tonne, obviously vastly different to $100 a tonne. Has that attitude changed a little bit? Oh, dramatically, absolutely dramatically. So that was the price that ICS, the International Council on Shipping, were proposing back at that stage, a $2 a tonne levy, which would have raised about $5 billion. The International Chamber of Shipping is now coming out um, in a submission with Bahamas and with Liberia, um, suggesting that a flat rate levy, as we've suggested, is the only pathway forward. They won't come out now and specify a price, but $100 a tonne would be a minimal charge, I think, if you asked any transport economist today. You have to look at the penalties that the European Union is imposing on international shipping now at €90 a tonne. In comparison with the amount of money that we're talking about within the industry, these are not high figures. Remember I said this is $1.4 to $1.9 trillion economic investment in this transition of shipping. The cost of trend of ensuring that no state is left behind, as the IMO has agreed, runs into hundreds of billions of dollars. If you think back to New Zealand's situation where we've just abandoned um, two ferries, inter-island ferries, of what a cost of $1.5 billion, you start to get a, a sense of the scale of, of investment that is currently being invested in the industry. A single ship can cost you between one and four hundred million dollars just for one boat. So although these figures sound large, comparatively they're not really. Are the six-pack, the Pacific Island nations calling for the $150 levy, uh, is the six-pack expecting any pushback against the proposal? Oh yes, I mean certainly um, the six-pack group of countries, which now includes of course the Caribbean, um, and we're continuously talking to other countries in the global south at the moment, is putting forward the most ambitious um, proposal. You have highly conservative nations um, that are incredibly worried about what, what the costs and impacts of this be on their trade that are pushing back hard against it. The BRICS, of course, um, do not want anything like this level of ambition. The US has already publicly stated that it's not you know, happy with the idea of an international levy either. So yes, there is certainly strong opposition to this, but regardless of that, the economic rationale makes sense. You can't argue with the fact that this is the most logical, most rational pathway forward if we're really to tackle this problem head on. And I think that's generally agreed by world experts. You've got um, UNCTAD, which is the UN's authority on transport and trade coming out saying they fully support um, you know, a flat rate levy as we've proposed. You've got substantive people within the industry now saying that. You've got a European submission backed by some of the African states saying, yes, we want a flat line levy. So it will be a highly contentious debate. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, the Pacific position is the most rational and logical going forward. Are the six-pack willing to settle for anything less than the $150 levy? course you'd have to ask our leaders that on the day but I would note that the track record of the six pack is that it's come out as the highest ambition block in the IMO and it has yet to compromise on what it considers high ambition. The six pack's been very disciplined about taking a science-based approach. We've 
We've been highly fortunate and we have access to extremely good global scientists and economists advising us. And we think that this, you know, the pathway that Six Pack's chosen is the science-based approach to resolving this problem. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to far so far.